0: Good morning, Kirk of the Plains. This is Pastor Jeremy Swigard of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It is my honor, my joy, my privilege to bring to you the Word of God this morning, though I wish I could be with you physically in your presence. This recording certainly is not without its merit. When Pastor Rick asked me to preach on his behalf, I asked him, where he had been preaching from, and he said the book of Hebrews, and I got really excited. In high school, I studied the book of Hebrews extensively, and I have since come to realize and understand that the book of Hebrews is basically an exposition of Psalm 110. This psalm is a great psalm. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Anytime you see a passage in the New Testament saying, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's it's alluding to or quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus uses this psalm to stump his enemies, to silence those who were trying to trap him in his words. This is a great psalm. It is worthy of our attention and of our devotion. So hear now the reading of God's holy, authoritative, inspired, and inerrant word. Psalm 110 A psalm of David The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek the Lord is at your right hand he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath he will execute judgments among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for this opportunity and privilege to exposit your word, to have your word change us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through it. We pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our minds and our hearts, that we might see you, hear you, understand you, and love you. Open up our lips as well, that we might proclaim you to our neighbors, to the nations, and to the generations to come. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As I've said, this psalm is itself a prophecy, but it's It's a prophecy and a revelation. It's a revelation to David that Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, will be both king and priest. So this psalm unites all three of the anointed offices of the nation of Israel into one person, the one God, the one true God, Yahweh. This psalm is a revelation and and a glimpse to us of eternity past. Of what God the Father and God the Son have agreed in the covenant of redemption to do in order to get His people to offer themselves freely to Him and in order to crush His enemies on the day of His wrath. So, first, we will look at verse 1 and see that Christ is king. We will see the kingship of the Messiah. Then we will look at verse 4 and see the priesthood of the Messiah. Then we'll fill in uh, both those prophecies. In verses 2 and 3, we will see those who have been redeemed, those who offer themselves freely, those who who are clothed in holy garments. And in verses 5 and through 7, we will see those who have been chosen as vessels of wrath, who will be shattered, crushed, and scattered over the wide earth. Now, words are important. Some words are of greater importance than others. Even in... This psalm, not even in the verse before we even get to the verses, the superscript has great controversy. And the controversy is over the word of. How do we understand the word of? Does this mean a psalm about David, composed by one of his courtiers, saying, the Lord says to my Lord, David... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Or is it by David? The Lord says to my Lord, David speaking, God the Father speaking to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is the king? This is obviously a kingly song, but the question is who is the king? Now, in order to understand the importance of even the tiniest of letters and to recognize that the importance of Jesus saying that not one jot, not one tittle will fall from the law, let me share with you a brief story about my own family. One day we were following, um, we were driving together and we pulled up behind an SUV at a stoplight. Now this SUV had a specialty license plate, KST8TRZ. Now, my wife, not being from Kansas, interpreted it one way. She put the K and the S together, Kansas, and that left T8TRZ, Taters, Kansas Taters. Now, what could possibly be the meaning of that? Now, I, being from Kansas, also noticed the purple band around the license plate and the Wildcat sticker in the corner of the vehicle. So, I separated the K and the S. K staters, Kansas State fans. Now, My wife has given me permission to share this story. She has said on multiple occasions it should be sermon fodder and an illustration. But the importance of this illustration is to show how difficult it is sometimes to understand how letters and words fit together to make a meaning. Now, Obviously, as I've been going through this psalm, you will see that I take the interpretation of a psalm of David being a psalm by David. Those who say it is a psalm about David say that we must let the Old Testament interpret itself and stand on its own, and we can't let the New Testament interpret what, how we understand the Old Testament. That statement is heavy on my soul because it reveals a bad hermeneutic, a bad set of rules that people are trying to follow as they interpret Scripture. Scripture is a progressive revelation, and once we get to the New Testament, The author of Hebrews himself tells us that Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God. And Hebrews is an exposition of Psalm 110. And Jesus is obviously the king and the priest throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus understood this psalm to be talking about himself. He was very self-aware of his deity and so to say that these new testament passages do not help us understand or that we cannot use them to help us understand how to interpret Psalm 110 is to do a great disservice to the text so let us continue let us continue with our exposition by looking at verse 1 first the lord says to my lord Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a prophecy. It's actually an oracle. An oracle of the Lord. Now, the importance of an oracle, of a prophetic oracle, is that it is one of authority. The source matters. Now, this word for oracle, or says in ESB, is only used of God. God is the only subject of this word. God is the only one who speaks an oracle. And so, to be, for God to be the source of this oracle means that we had better pay attention. We had better pay attention to the entirety of Scripture but especially when God says this is an oracle, this is something that is firm, it is steadfast, it is unchanging. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the author of Hebrews says that this is fulfilled in the session of Christ. Christ, after he was crucified, dead, buried and risen from the dead. He spent 40 days on earth preparing his disciples for Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come upon each of them individually. And when he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, sitting implies that you are at rest, that your work is done. Well, and that is true. Christ's work on the cross is complete. It's done. It's finished. It's through. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. But sitting at the right hand of the throne of God means not only that he is done with his work on earth, but also that he is offering continual intercession for us on our behalf. It means that Christ continually intercedes for his people. And to sit at the right hand means that Christ has the authority of the Father. They are equal in power and in glory. The Father has given to the Son the authority to rule and reign. And the Father says, until I make your enemies your footstool. To be a footstool is to be in a place of low regard. It is to be in a place of disregard. It is to be in a place of being defeated. Christ has defeated his enemies, the most significant of which Is the enemy of death. And Christ fulfills the office of king. But the problem is that we are in rebellion against this king, against his rule and reign. From the moment that Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, we have been in trouble. To break the covenant of works that God set up with Adam and Eve requires the penalty of death. There is no other way around the covenant of works. And once God establishes a covenant, he does not revoke it. Which is why the author of Hebrews goes to extensive lengths to demonstrate that what was set up under Moses was meant to be temporary from the very beginning. But I digress. From the moment that Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, the penalty, the consequence, the just judgment of that action requires death. So the question throughout Scripture is how can God be just and not require the death of Adam and Eve. R.C. Sproul was once asked a question in a question and answer session at a conference. And the question was, how come God was so strict and stern against Adam and Eve when when he kicked them out of the garden? R.C. Sproul's famous response was, what's wrong? with you people. Dr. Sproul rightly understood that the, because God is holy and just, the perfect consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience required their death. And so when God closed them with the skin of an animal, He is saying, I will give you a substitutionary death. I will require your blood at the hands of another. And in Genesis 3, even in the midst of the curse that God is pronouncing against Adam and Eve and the serpent, God gives hope, saying that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so, we are in this plight. How are we to get out of it? Well, that question is answered in verse 4. Verse 4 is an oath promising the priesthood of the Messiah. In verse 4, we are told that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So, in verse 1, we have an oracle. And in verse 4, we have an oath. Now, the author of Hebrews goes to great length to explain that an oath is something that establishes a covenant. Now, in order to establish a covenant, you have to have an oath. You have to have two parties. You have to have an agreement. You have to have all these different elements. And in the Old Testament a covenant was established through cutting you did not just make a covenant you cut a covenant now this cutting involved the death of animals and as these animals bled and were killed and bled out the parties to the covenant would walk between these animals And as they would walk through, they would say that, let what has happened to these animals happen to me if I break covenant with you. If I do not keep the terms of this covenant, I deserve death. Now this is true of the covenant of works. The covenant of grace is that another's death is offered on behalf of those who deserve death. Now, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. Now, the author of Hebrews goes back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham had gone after the king's, to rescue Lot. Abraham and his men had defeated several kings. They had brought back the spoil, and along the way, they meet Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? I'm sure Pastor Rick has explained this to you, but it bears repeating for this particular passage. Melchizedek, the name itself, means King of righteousness and Melchizedek was king of Salem he was king of a city that was of peace now what is the significance of righteousness and peace righteousness god's righteousness when luther was struggling with his guilt before he fully understand, understood the gospel, his confessing priest would tell him, Luther, just love God. And Luther responded, love him. Sometimes I hate him. It is the righteousness of God that is the absolute perfect standard, and I can't attain it. Luther would confess for hours about the minutest things. Recognizing that he did not measure up to God's perfect standard. God's perfect standard of holiness, of righteousness. Luther, as a law student, understood that the Ten Commandments were a great indictment against the entire human race. He knew that he was guilty before a holy God. And that the righteousness of God was absolute it was perfect. And because he was not, he could not stand in the presence of a holy God. So, Christ is king of righteousness. Not only does he possess this righteousness, he is king of it. He is king because he is righteous. There is none righteous like him. He is perfect in all his ways. He is The exact representation of God, and of his being, and of his character. So the Lord has sworn, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is the significance of a priest? What does a priest do? Well, a priest stands between the people and God. The priest is the one who is designated... To offer the sacrifices, to offer the substitutionary sacrifices that the people that was that were the death that the people deserved. Now, the author of Hebrews makes goes into great length to say that the blood of bulls and goats was absolutely insufficient to cover sins, and even in the Old Testament, the prophets understood this. Micah said, shall I offer the blood of bulls and goats you will not accept? Shall I offer the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. What what does the Lord require of you? He's made it clear, O man. You must do justice. You must love mercy or covenant faithfulness and walk humbly with your God. Habakkuk says... You cannot live without faith. In fact, Paul quotes this author in Romans, stating that we cannot live by faith. And it was this very verse that brought Martin Luther to a great realization and the great revelation that the righteousness by which God counts us righteous in His sight is not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. It is Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. It is the king of peace who makes peace between God and man. Now, in the case of Christ, he himself is the perfect sacrifice by which we are made righteous. It is his death that is offered. And accepted on our behalf. And because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Saying, my blood, my death will always stand. It will always suffice for my people. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more valuable. There is nothing more precious than the blood of Christ. And we would do well to pay attention to this. For there are only two options to respond to this great reality, that Christ is king and priest. These two responses are of joy, of repentance, and of love, versus rebellion, hatred, animosity. These two responses are given to us in verses 2 and 3, and then in verses 5 through 7. Let's look at those verses. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord sends forth from Zion. All it takes is a word from God. And universe comes into existence. All the galaxies, all the solar systems, all the planets, came into existence because of a great command of God. Now the Lord sends forth from Zion. What does he send forth? He sends forth your mighty scepter. Now, we who are in America don't understand kingly um, regalia. A scepter is a symbol of the king's authority. Now, one of the best illustrations of the use of a scepter is, comes to us from Scripture. It's the story of Esther coming before King Ahasuerus after three days of fasting. Making an appeal to the king for the life of her people and for her own life as well. Now the law forbade anyone to approach the king without being invited. So Esther approaches the king uninvited, which is the exact opposite of what Vashti had done. Vashti, whom Esther replaced, was summoned to the king, and she refused, and she was exiled. The penalty for approaching the king without invitation was death, unless the king extended his scepter, his rule of authority. He alone had the authority to extend mercy to whom he wills. And so as he extends the scepter to Esther, we see the beautiful picture of God extending the scepter of his goodwill to his people. And it is a symbol of mercy and of authority. Uh, The end of verse 2 says, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, most earthly kings rule in the midst of their people. So, why are we being told that the king, the Messiah, will rule in the midst of his enemies? Well, this shows the greatness of his power because he is able to take his enemies and make them into his friends. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely. They will be free will offerings. They, it, because they recognize that the death of Christ has been offered on their behalf, they offer themselves freely. They come to him joyfully and gladly. ...in holy garments. Now, the garment of righteousness. Going back to Adam and Eve, they were clothed with the skin of an animal. They were clothed with an alien righteousness. And so, we also are clothed with an alien righteousness. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and because of that clothing... God declares us holy and righteous and it is without that clothing that we have no access to the father Jesus shares the parable of a wedding feast guests were invited and they were distinguished and and made recognized because of their clothing now One walked in and said he didn't have the proper clothing. He didn't have the wedding garments that were necessary. And so the head of the feast, the head of the wedding feast, says, how is it that you came in here without wedding garments? And the man was speechless, and they cast him out. In the same way, we do not have access to the Father Without the robe of righteousness of the without the robe of the righteousness of Christ, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, the meaning of this particular passage is difficult. The Hebrew um, there are several different variances to it, but just taking the ESV, it's it's clear that. From the womb of the morning, from the resurrection of Christ, the dew of your youth will be yours. Dew was a good thing. Uh, Psalm 133 talks about the dew of Mount Hermon um, providing water and sustenance and growth and life to all the farmland around it. Dew was a good thing. And now we get into um, a bit of an allusion to the story of Gideon. Gideon put out the fleece and said, let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. And then he said, wait, that would happen anyway. Let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. Now I know, okay, yes, I I will go after the Midianites. In a similar way, God the Father is saying to God the Son, fear not death. From the womb of the morning, from the dawn of the sun, the dew of your youth will be yours. You will be renewed. You will be strengthened. You will come to life again because you are perfect. Because you are the Holy One of God. Because you committed no sin, you deserve no death. And because your death is substitutionary, death cannot hold you. It was impossible for death to hold Christ. And so he was raised to newness of life, and we who are in him by grace through faith also have the hope of this same resurrection. Now, continuing on down to verses 5 through 7, we get to the part of the psalm that many of us, especially in America, have a difficult time with. Um, The scene shifts... Because people have rejected Christ as king and as priest. Because people have rejected and trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. These these people face these consequences. The Lord is at your right hand. The Lord being the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus. The Lord is at your right hand. So now David actually is talking. And he's saying, Christ is at your right hand, Father. And he is the one doing the action now that he has come and been proclaimed king and priest. Now he is acting on behalf of his people against his enemies. So the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, what is the day of his wrath? Obviously, well, it's the last judgment. There could be, there are lots of other days of wrath when God outpours his wrath on the children and the nation of Israel in sending them into exile and in destroying the temple in 8070 and completely wiping them out at Masada in AD 73 and so on and so forth, but... This day of wrath is the final day, the day on which Christ conquers his enemies. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. There is no earthly authority that can stand before the authority of God and Christ. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. Now an interesting thing about the Hebrew is that chiefs in verse 6 is the same word as head in verse 7. So the contrast is set up between the kings of this earth who seek to rebel against God by setting up their own authority. Recently I've read the passage of Daniel chapter 4, where God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and makes Nebuchadnezzar have the mind of a wild beast. And Nebuchadnezzar is out in the fields, and he's sustained, and his hair grows long, and his fingernails grow long, and he's given the mind of a beast, and his kingdom is taken away from him. God establishes kings, and he takes them down. God is great and powerful above any earthly authority to an infinite degree. And we would do well to recognize that God and his authority is supreme beyond our comprehension Beyond our understanding. And so, He, Christ, will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Death is the penalty of rebellion against God. He will shatter chiefs, He will crush them. The picture is of being in battle and of just completely obliterating your enemy. And he will shatter them over the wide earth. And it's not as though this is a difficult thing for him. But even so, he he chases down his enemies. In verse 7 we read, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now one of the things about ancient warfare is that the victorious army would, when they won the battle, their enemies would scatter. They would run every which way, and so the victorious army, in order to complete the victory, had to pursue their enemies. Gideon does the same thing, and there are a couple of stories about Gideon and authorities from cities saying, no, we won't help you, and Gideon coming back and ex- exacting revenge. But the point is that he, Christ, will drink from the brook by the way, in a, in a similar way as Gideon or King Saul pursued, or even King David, pursued his enemies. One of the things that they could do as they were pursuing was to kneel down and drink. Drink from the brook, by the way. Basically, um, it it was a wadi. So whenever water came through, it would replenish the, the stream bed. And as you drink from this, you're refreshed in order to pursue your enemies to the fullest extent. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Christ and his head will be exalted. The, the chiefs, the kings, will be shattered. But Christ will be exalted. And because Christ is exalted, we would do well to worship him. To respond to him in faith and in hope and in love. So what I want to leave you with from this passage is a picture of God. God has known from eternity past. He has ordained from eternity past that Christ would be king and priest. God himself has prophesied the kingship and the priesthood of Christ. Now this kingship and this priesthood redeems some people and it condemns the rest. We like the redeeming part. We don't like the condemning part. But we must recognize that the truth of Scripture it holds both of these. If we do not uphold both of these aspects of God's character we will not understand Scripture. We will not joyfully come to Christ. We will not um, offer ourselves freely. We will not be dressed in holy garments. We will be in rebellion against God. And so I encourage, exhort, command you to believe in and to trust this God this God who has revealed himself as the one who is, the one who is unchanging, the one who is life in himself. Know him, love him, embrace him. For the consequences of not doing so are terrible. But when you do come to him by grace through faith, He clothes you with his righteousness. And when you see him face to face, you will be made like him. There is no greater promise than to be made like him. And so, I encourage you, I exhort you, I command you with the commands of Scripture. Repent of your unbelief or of your lack of understanding of the fullness of God's character and embrace what he has revealed of himself and humbly come before him. Let us take a minute or so and reflect on the beauty and the glory of the character and the nature of God, and then we will pray. let us pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this psalm, this psalm that reveals um, the fullness of your character to us. Though it was just a shadow at the time that David wrote it, the fullness of the light and the glory have been revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would make the reality of these truths frontlets between our eyes, tassels on our garments, reminders on our doorposts that you are God, that you alone are God, and that we must follow you and obey you because you love us. And because of who you are, and because of your commands. We ask all these things by your great grace and for your great glory. In Jesus' name.